Heads and welcome to this week's bonus American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and colleague Derek Davison, and we are excited to be joined by I think Will Meneker. Uh, no, I know Will Meneker. I was going to say I think Will was on our first bonus episode where we did Three Kings, and he is back for a movie episode. And this time we're going to be discussing the original Top Gun. Will, thanks so much for joining us, man. It's a pleasure to be back in the fighter weapons school, also known to the podcasters who record it as Top Gun. Yeah, bringing back the lost uh, art of dogfighting, uh, which yeah, I think has been right. for about right. 15 years. At, at, at so, the poster weapons school, uh, like the, our, our, our posters lost the ability to riff sometime around 2016. And we're bringing I'm, it back. Uh, bring I'm, it back. I'm excited that you're here because we. I thought we could all start by talking about what everybody did with their podcasting PPP loans. <laughs> uh, very you know, good. I, we weren't making much at the time, Derek. But I no, think but it really not. helped we out. Got, I, probably could have quintupled what we were making by getting that uh, one. <laughs> I put mine in, in LunaCoin. I haven't checked it since then, but I think I'm doing pretty well. So. well you could, yeah, like you Disco could. Stew with the you know, Disco sales in 1976 reached an all-time high. They were up 400%. Uh, yeah. I mean, I got to say, though, I, yeah, believe me, uh, Derek and Danny, like you guys, I spent all weekend um, just absolutely kicking myself for not getting a PPP loan to do the podcast <laughs> and wondering what I could have done with $52,000 and free money. And uh, now that I've spent uh, this week uh, preparing for the, our, our Top Gun crossover week, I've seen Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. The answer is I would have spent that $52,000 getting all of us custom bomber jackets with all kinds of <laughs> patches and cool stuff like so that. So cool. Nice. Those, were, those became a thing, I think, after the original Top Gun. Like, a Brett Easton Ellis character would have worn something like that. Like, Patrick Bateman might have had something like that in his thing. And I wonder what uh, fashion this will inspire now. So why don't we just head into the movie? And Will... For, for the young kids who might not know, who's Tony Scott? Because in some sense, Tony Scott is the real star of this movie. Absolutely. Well, you know, Tony Scott is uh, the brother of his, his usually better known and unfortunately better known brother, uh, Ridley Scott. I think but, that's actually you know, changing, by the way. I think people I, are I, like, I mean, Tony is the real Scott. I, I would hope so. I mean, honestly, I wish there, Kingdom of Heaven is on TV right now, by the way, <laughs> speaking of Ridley Scott and his uh, lesser, you know, lesser <laughs> yeah. light films. I don't know. I mean, like Tony Scott, like to me, is one of like the great auteur filmmakers of the 20th century. Like uh, as someone who really it, like created the genre of like a blockbuster summer action movie. And and I think like more than almost anyone I can think of, like elevated that to like a real unique art form. I think is like a, a true auteur director. I mean, I was just um, I was uh, just like I, th- I think because it was like everyone's talking about Top Gun. Someone shared on Twitter this week a story from the filming of the original Top Gun that we're talking about, and they're filming on this aircraft carrier. And Tony Scott tells the captain of the aircraft carrier, like, okay, can we can you just turn the boat around and go back into the sunset one more time? Because uh, like I, just, I, wanna, I didn't get the perfect shot of the way of like the, the sun glistening on the ocean and the silhouette of the aircraft carrier. And the captain of the, uh, air, of the, of the, the ship says, like, uh, buddy, like, if, we, if, we, if we turn this aircraft carrier even once, it costs the Navy $25,000. So apparently Tony Scott wrote him a check on the spot for $25,000, <laughs> gave it to him. He did it. It got the shot and the check bounced. <laughs> that's perfect that's the that's, perfect that's also like a, a horseshit military thing to say like what the fuck does that <laughs> yeah. even mean twenty five thousand dollars to turn the boat twenty five thousand dollars absolutely ridiculous i mean but like yeah, there's like, another another example of him filming spy game is that like uh like brad pitt and robert redford are on the roof of this fucking like you know is a roof of an apartment building or cafe in like prague or something and he wanted to just film their conversation like a rotating aerial shot with a helicopter and the studio was like this is ridiculous like we're not this is you're over budget already like you're not going to just film a conversation with a helicopter and he was just like fuck it and paid out of pocket like this tony scott style and like it's funny because like this was his first like big 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 movie but like this is to watch like the way his style evolves like his style in this movie is is very restrained 
uh, as as opposed to like Man on Fire or some of his later movies, where he but he really or just Domino. still has this. Yeah, Domino, Domino is like. And Domino's, I think, extraordinarily influential with the color palette and everything. Just I think like all the color, Scott, just the color grading, the editing. It's just like I, I, his style is just like just just throw everything out there. Like there's nothing he won't do. Like just like editing, color grading, just but putting a camera like just wherever it can fit, wherever it can go to get the shot. Like it, it's just this manic, manic and like blockbuster intensity that uh, really defined the genre. And every time I'm in LA, every time I'm in LA. I I have found a way to make it to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and uh, pay tribute to the great man's final resting place. And I believe Top Gun was actually only his second movie. Uh, So it's really... After The Hunger, I think. After The Hunger, precisely. And and it's really uh, an accomplishment. I mean, it's such a fucking cool-looking movie. I mean, it still works decades later. Derek, what do you think of it? Um, I mean, Top Gun's a classic. It's... it's, uh it really did it not only invented i think the the or you know boosted the idea of the big summer blockbuster but i i think and you guys can probably talk about this um more fluently than i can but i think it was if not the first and one of the first movies to really uh stitch together hollywood and the u.s military oh yeah uh in you know a very serious way i mean not to say there weren't war films before this one but in terms of the level of cooperation and interaction and the extent to which the movie kind of serves as a recruiting tool uh for the for the navy uh this this is was groundbreaking it was the highest grossing movie of 1986 and for a movie like this to come out in 1986 um, it's like not only it was probably the most effective recruitment ad for the military of all time. Uh, something like uh, like uh, people applying to join the Navy um, doubled after the, top, the year Top Gun came out. <laughs> That's how effective it was. It's, everyone wanted to be Maverick, and you know the thing about Top Gun is it's all about the wonderful characters we're introduced to. You know, you've got Ice, you've got Slider, you've got Hollywood. You've you've got Merlin. You've got, you've got Merlin. Oh, Merlin. Yeah, you've got Merlin. Right. You've Le- got uh, Wolfman. You've got Wolfman. But seriously, I mean, the, the cast of this film is crazy. You've got like you've got Val Jester, Kilmer, Viper. Anthony Edwards, Tom, Tom Skerritt. The Tom uh, Skerritt. I mean, just the people in these little roles. Michael, Michael Ironside is on screen for like two minutes. Michael, Michael Ironside. Ironside. Classic. The Tim Robbins has barely any screen time, but he, is you, you know, see him at the end in this movie. Uh, it's, Could it's someone crazy. actually explain why? So, uh, so at the very end of Top Gun, they, they like go through a, a, a few of the actors and the characters, and like two or three of them were were barely noticeable. That was really strange. Did did you notice that? Well, I mean, I just think like if you were in the Top Gun school, no matter even if your character didn't have a had That's one right. speaking line in the movie, line, you get the respect yeah. of uh, getting in the, <laughs> the the closing credit montage of everyone sort of looking at the camera and smiling, which is really my favorite thing that can be a movie can do. So I think it's important to situate it to bring it down to the level a bit. It's important to situate this movie, I think, as a, a Vietnam syndrome movie. Absolutely. So for people who might not know, <laughs> uh, after the no end of the question. Vietnam War. There was something called Vietnam syndrome, and for I'd say about what to Lebanon. So I mean, I guess you have Maya way in there too. But let's just say from roughly 1975 to the early 1980s, mid 1980s, there was a lot of discussion in sort of the the magazines and the newspapers of record about what the U the United States had lost its way. You get that domestically with the Jimmy Carter malaise speech, but you also get that with foreign policy, and you, you get this moment of post detente, post Vietnam foreign policy where it's like not cool to be a soldier for a second. And, and I think this movie really, really takes that, the, the bricks of the Vietnam syndrome to mix metaphors and just like runs into it with an F-14 at the very beginning because it situates the Top Gun school as, as sort of a Vietnam era thing. Yeah, uh, it's they had to start it because of Vietnam. Right. Right, and like right. you know, when like when when they're for their first day in school, uh, Jester, played by Michael Ironside, is just telling them that like it's all about how American pilots have gotten too reliant on missiles and they've lost their dogfighting edge. And he uses the KD ratios from the Korean War, which were twelve to one in favor of American pilots against their adversaries. And then when Vietnam started, it went only went down to three to one. And I'm like, oh, dude. And then he's like, well, but by the end of Vietnam, it was back to twelve to one. And I'm like. Awesome. Great job, dude. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it certainly helped win the war. Pound those fuckers. Yeah. yeah. It was, and I think they also mentioned, I might be mixing the Top Gun, but they talk about bombing too. 
right? Like, like it's, it's not just all bombing anymore that you need to actually have dog fighting and training. And, and it's very much about, and it'll be interesting to talk later about Top Gun 2 in a different episode. Uh, it, the, the, these are, these are both movies released at sort of like a, a, a low point for the, for the American empire. Uh, obviously Top Gun 2 was supposed to be released a while ago, but I still think that it, it, it oh, it's, that it's, it's still a low point fire. for the American the empire. Yeah, it's, it's still, yeah, it's just, it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and but so I mean, it's kind like, of interesting. And it's funny about. because like the whole problem of Top Gun 1, and then as we'll talk about tomorrow, Top Gun Maverick is that essentially fighter planes are cooler than just about anything else that the military does. But they're both made in eras where, like, it's like the number one problem of the of the the, the Top Gun program. There is just simply no way that the United States is ever going to fight a war against a country that also has fighter planes. <laughs> and it's just so not it's just not as cool to imagine like like a cool like alpha jock guy whose job it is to just like fly a plane at thirty thousand feet and then just open a fucking door and like fifty thousand bombs fall out of it, the bottom of it. Right. Yeah, like that's. I mean, you can, you can, you could envision. I mean, we'll talk about this when we talk about the the sequel. But you didn't have to go through as many hoops to envision a scenario (laughs) where this could happen in 1986. Now, the amount of exposition that they have to do to create a situation where the U.S. military, the U.S. like Navy, might find itself in a dogfight is just. Like incredible, <laughs> the amount of like bending they have to go through uh, to create that that scenario is crazy. But yeah, I mean, even back in 1986, I mean, this was like, you know, just a few years before the the Gulf War, and I mean, the Iraqi military wasn't going to be like dogfighting <laughs> pilots. I mean, they they didn't I even mean, try. They took all the planes and like flew them to Iran to keep them out, like keep them from like getting captured by the U.S. They didn't even try. Uh, yeah, so it's it's still still pretty far fetched. But um, I mean, I think I I, I want to ask you guys about it because, like, you know, in in the original Top Gun, it starts right off. You're on an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean, and then what's like what's out there lurking? The ever present danger, the dreaded Russian MIG. The MIG. The MIG. <laughs> the MIG's in perfect firing position. He's right on Cougar's tail. No way, Goose. He'd have fired by now. He's just trying to piss us off. Maverick, get down here and get this asshole off me. The mythic, and I remember like as a kid, it was like, you know, an AK-47 in an action film. It's just like, oh, the Russians, they have, they have the best guns, the best weapons. It's just this, this deadly, sleek uh, beast out there which roaming, roaming and, uh, and ravening our, our, beautiful, our beautiful F-14s, which are sort of clunky and not as fast. What, what, what was the MIG of that era like? And like, just like, like how, how does this movie like uh, sort of uh, rate as far as its depiction of the F-14 versus the MIG, history's greatest battles that never actually happened? <laughs> well, no, so, maybe they I did mean, happen, they, they, but that that's not for the world classified. to know. Oh, okay. It's classified, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot of like, I think it's even, it's, it's even more explicit in the sequel, but in this one too, uh, there's a lot of like, trying to get the same feeling of like a star wars like the 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 final scene or the final you know sequence in star wars of the tie fighter with the like faceless guy in the cockpit with just a black yeah uh, screen on his face and like breathing heavy into his mask and uh, the the kind of ominous music every time one of these planes uh shows up i mean it, it's it's sort of like i mean megs were Always the, the, I, I, my understanding anyway is that the, the concern with the MIG was always that they went for like maneuverability over right, speed and firepower. Yeah. So they were difficult in a dogfight. If there was a dogfighting situation, U.S. planes would be at, at some disadvantage because they couldn't maneuver as well, but they had higher, you know, they had better tech. They had, uh, you know, better weaponry and more of it. Um, but of course this is, you know, Three years, I guess, four years before we learned that the Soviet Union was collapsing in on itself this whole time. Uh, so it's, I mean, you know, if this actually would have happened in, in the real world, I mean, these planes probably would have been, uh, you know, had... Uh, nuts and bolts falling off of them in midair and like, uh, it wouldn't even be piloted. <laughs> So I actually want to talk about that for a second because it is interesting how 
they do reference the MiG, and so that's obviously a Soviet plane, but there really isn't much made out of it being versus the Soviet Union. And we could compare this to the other one tomorrow, but what do you guys make of that? Because that, that's really interesting, because in some sense, it, it's, it's very much the embodiment of the Reagan era, where you, you don't even really need a rhyme or a reason for the American empire. There's just bad guys out there, and the only thing that's going to stop them are, are young, virile American men. And they don't even make much of geopolitics. They don't even make much of strategy. It's just, you're, you're going to go out there and you're going to fight and you're going to be the best, you know, like it's very much about being the best. So I thought that was a very interesting choice to just totally strip effectively geopolitics from the entire thing (laughs) in a war movie. Well, I mean, I think it's a, a, a conscious choice and a successful one on behalf of the screenwriters and filmmakers, because like, as we just outlined it's just like the the more you draw attention to the fact that like oh like you know like we're supposed to believe that this is like an an, an analogous present and this is the united states navy a dog fighting with like the russian military that like the less time you spend thinking about that and you're just like oh like they're bad guys you know like don't really need to know the motivation or what country they're part of or what the geopolitical ramifications of any of this are of like you know maverick getting to be cool as hell like i just you're you're, just allow your mind to just like glade just just sort of glide over that It is. I mean, it is interesting. I, I Googled this because I, you know, watched the movie and you get to the end of it. And, and if once you kind of, you know, pull out of the, uh, like coolness of it, you, you think, like, did they just start World War Three? Like, is that what happened here? <laughs> no, the they say it, they say or, at the end. They say, are at the, the end, nukes like, going to start secret. It's like, well, yeah, they they the everyone knows it's not every newspaper, but no, but it's in knows. the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It makes absolutely no sense. Like it's on the, he's on the cover of every newspaper, but it's classified. <laughs> so actually I will, I want to pick up on something you said, and I'm curious what you guys both think of this. Is Top Gun still cool? Is Maverick still cool? And then I think we should get into Tom Cruise because this is really Cruise's Big, big breakout. Yeah, this is when he becomes a megastar. This is when he becomes a megastar. This is when he really becomes Tom Cruise and not just like, you know. (laughs) This is the the beginning. Yeah, exactly. This And so I'm curious what you guys thought about that because it was really interesting to watch this. And I feel like Cruise is kind of at the end at this point. And and we'll talk about this tomorrow. But like very clearly, they're like, you're the last movie star. And they basically say that in in Maverick. And um, so what do you think about returning to sort of the origin story of Tom Cruise? You know, he's got his teeth aren't perfect he the 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 skin isn't perfect he definitely doesn't have traditional matinee looks with like bigger features and bigger nose but he's just portrayed as the coolest fucking person on earth so i will i'd like to hear you on early tom cruise well i mean like yeah like he may he may not have the uh uh all of the um uh, enhancements that uh he has now but you know what like he still got that just a million dollar smile and intensity that you see why like he became like one of the biggest movie stars of all time and now probably the last real movie star. And like the funny thing about, you know, rewatching Top Gun, uh, you know, in the movie made in nineteen eighty six, I probably first saw it for the saw it for the first time in the nineties, so it was like already probably at least ten years old by then. And the thing is like even me watching it as a kid, it like it is it is it like it's very corny and ridiculous. Like, it's just like, I, I, I laugh along to the movie. I mean, there are the obvious, obvious homoerotic elements of Top Gun, which are like, <laughs> I didn't pick up which on are like, this. it's not even subtext. It's not even subtext. No, it's but, text from the very beginning. Yeah. They're all yeah, like, it's, it's, it's so yeah. blatant. It's so blatant. And like, that was obvious to me <laughs> even as a kid, but yeah, like watching it now, like, yeah, like as a kid, obviously fascinated by military hardware, political implications aside, what it comes down to is that at the end of the day, flying a fighter plane is fucking cool. It probably feels better than sex doing that shit. You know, it's like it just it can't be denied. And you just have to, like, uh, make your peace of that. You can you can feel guilty for, for feeling that way or not. But uh, no, it's just from the jackets to just like, you know, riding a big ass dick. It's 600 miles an hour uh, shooting at shit in the air. It can't be denied. It makes you pretty cool. And it's kind of a cultural figure we don't really have anymore. Uh, you still had it a bit in the eighties with kind of the right stuff. When was that released? You know, that, that was a huge. That was like the late seventies. Late seventies. So there's this moment, I think, because the eighties, right, the right stuff was 1983. So that was three years before. Oh, uh, right before. Uh, Top right before. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's doing research. It, it portrays the sixties. Is that it's like Chuck Yeager. Yeah. 
Right. And he's doing the research in the 70s. So there's this thing in the 80s also with like the return of the fighter pilot because the fighter pilot is a trope that exists throughout the 20th century. And it's really connected to like the romance of development, the romance of technology. Um, you know, the Red Baron, uh, in Germany is a famous one. I think Hermann Goering actually, uh, flew with the Red Baron. Hermann Goering, a very high ranking Nazi. Uh, someone like Chuck Yeager, who I believe broke the sound barrier. So, th- so these are figures that were really popular, I'd say, between the 20s, uh, and the 80s. <laughs> kind of, in, in a sense, uh, they, they correlate with the, with the high era of movie making. Movie making goes a little more, but sort of like the, these mass political entertainments and, and almost Tom Cruise is coming at the end of, of both of these. And it just really embodies that type of individualist American spirit. Yeah. Howard Hughes's first movie, Hell's Angels, his big epic yes, is about World precisely. War One aces. Right. And so it's, it's a big trope that we don't really have anymore. And we'll talk about that, I think, more when we talk about Top Gun 2. But this is really, I think, the end of it, of that being an organic trope where, where you could talk to people on the street about fighter pilots. You know, now everyone speaks about drones. Now everyone speaks about bombing, et cetera. So it's well, yeah, like, I mean, really like, well, the I, end of this, something. It's funny because, like, you know, like drones do the exact same thing, which is just like just dispassionately kill tons of people from like a, a great distance at like little at little and now zero risk to any human being who's actually like pulling right. the trigger or whatever further removed from it yeah, and you know like when it comes to like the the the, the fighter the fighting ace though as they say in in maverick you know the pilot in the box it's like i it's it's like you know it's like it's like even more than motorcycles you know represents the kind of like american mechanical technical power and like sexual energy and the idea of killing someone like that, you know, basically riding a motorcycle in the sky at 600 miles an hour is, you know, it's like, a, it, it's undeniable, you know, like the, the kind of uh, the, the connection to the, you know, like our, our, our id. And like I said, this, uh, this, this, this primal sexual imperial energy that, we, you know, whether, whether you want to or not, we're all kind of affected by. And there's, I mean, there's something about like the rugged isolation of it, too. I mean, you're in the cockpit you're you're you know at most and i mean you know uh as technology's changed this is certainly uh changed but at most you're in there with like your bro so it's just the two of you uh manly men doing your manly man things uh but there i i do think there's like this appeal to it because it's it's a rugged individual doing rugged individual things to you know uh, defeat his enemies. It's just speed. It's just like uh, the need for speed, like speed and this kind of ultimate infinite horizon of like the skyline when you're at like, you know, 30,000 feet traveling at, you know, hypersonic speeds. And it's also just interesting because it was a movie made in a time when people believed in things, or at least they, they felt they believed in things. And, and it's just like the spirit of it. I, I did enjoy Top Gun too, but the spirit of it, it, it just isn't in, I, I think, the same way. There's something really organic about Top Gun 1 and the masculinity and the excitement and everything that goes in there. I, there's something about like having that existential threat out there that people feel, um, which at this point still was there. Um, that, that I think, you know, lends itself to making a movie like this. Whereas, you know, not to get too far into the sequel, but you have to go to like, well, they're building a uranium enrichment plant. <laughs> yeah. There's no <laughs> fucking explanation. Yeah, come to on. This. Like, what yeah. are the fucking stakes here? But <laughs> yeah. here, you don't even need to explain it. It's just like we have a ship that's off course right. and like it could be, you know, nukes in five minutes. So, you know, everybody get, get moving. So, I mean, it's not like it's, it's easier to create that kind of tension. So now I have uh, a question. So Top Gun was never in like my my canon. Obviously, I'd seen it, but I haven't seen it a million times. Uh, and this is probably a question for Will. So, Will, there are some moments in the movie that just appear a little bit disjointed. I think the most famous one is the one in the locker room where kind of out of nowhere, Iceman and Maverick have an exchange, and then he like kind of does that famous teeth thing at yeah, him. Yeah, a little biting. Uh, yeah, a little biting. There's other, <laughs> there's other moments what that... What homoeroticism? What are you talking about? I don't like you because you're dangerous. That's right. Nice. Man, I am dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the homoerotic... But, but it just feels like a bit... Clunky isn't even the right word because it doesn't feel off. But I was just wondering if you knew anything about the making of the movie or sort of... It, it felt a little cocaine-y. In that well, sense, yeah. you know, there's, a, there's Don like Simpson, highs. Jerry Bruckheimer movie produced in 1986. <laughs> yeah, so what is that? Gee, I wonder yeah. if anyone involved in the making of this movie at any level Where was drugs were zooted out of their fucking minds <laughs> doing it. I mean, like when I think of like, yeah, like because there, 
it it has it has a, it's oddly paced like it, it's oddly paced right it's it's has some odd odd pacing issues and like you know Top Gun is not is is not my favorite Tony Scott movie I mean I think it's I think it's a genius piece of like blockbuster entertainment but it's not it's not my favorite Tony Scott movie but it is suffused with this like um. Like, I, like all, all the scenes that don't take place in the air that are like in Miramar where it's like Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis or he's riding his motorcycle are just sort of like effused with such this like a ethereal kind of like soft orange, like sun-kissed California glow to it that really like it, 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 it like I said, the way Tony Scott like composes and like light shots, um, especially outdoors, um, the way he captures like light and stuff and, Cal- and just, like, the sort of California feel of it is just so rich to me. Like, but like I mean, there's one scene in particular that stands out about how like just sort of weirdly paced and disjointed it feels is like okay, like the scene where where Tom Cruise goes over to Kelly McGillis's house and they listen to "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay," and like and like <laughs> how can you, she say I, she hasn't heard that song? In years? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I haven't heard it's one like of the most famous songs of all time. I mean, I, I'm like I, I have to think that this is somewhat intentional in that like how obviously gay the movie is and like what, what an obvious metaphor it is about like, you know, Maverick is dangerous in Iceman's eyes because he's not safe. And you could look at like the, you know, post AIDS crisis metaphor there, but I think it's more like he's dangerous because he's unpredictable because he's still in the closet and hasn't really accepted being, being a top yet. Um, so like, yeah, he goes to Kelly McGillis's house dressed like rough trade and then asked to take a shower at his date's house when he shows <laughs> up there. He walks in, he's like, can I take a shower? And it's also right after the volleyball scene. He's right after coming from right the after the play. He's going yeah. Yeah, literally from the, he's from out the of pl- the closet and he's into the closet. Like yeah, literally of, he goes into the shower. If you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to just take a quick shower while you're finishing up here. Yeah, I do mind. <laughs> So, like, you think they're going to hook up, and then they don't. Like, I think it's some movie, Quentin Tarantino has a whole monologue about this, and I'm not, it's not original here, but, like, then the next scene where, like, they, they see each other in the elevator, and it's just like, wait, like, a day has passed now, and the, the scene just restarts again in the elevator, and Kelly McGillis has her hair up in, like a, like, a, like, a baseball hat. I do know that that was the only scene that was filmed after, like, the movie wrapped. It was, like, it was sort of, like, they had to, like, plug it in for some reason, and there's, like... It's odd because there's no real reason for it to be there, but all I know is that like it plays so well because it's like the first time Tom Cruise really comes on to her, and it's when she's dressed like a man. But apparently, she had the baseball hat on because she was had already started filming another movie, so her hair was different. So for continuity reasons, she has her hair up in a baseball hat in that scene. But like, yeah, just everything about Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis's interactions in this movie like make no sense and are deeply weird and like, (laughs) like yeah, disjointed and just feel like out of place. They they just don't work. Or in my opinion, they do work because the filmmakers were like conscious at what like the that they were doing a queer text they were queering uh so you think that was we- intentional fighter weapons school i mean like you think that, that's, you think that was intentional that's a that's a, it, do, it that's doesn't a, matter dan it doesn't matter this is, we're in a postmodern world now <laughs> yeah true true it, it, as long if it's on the screen the, the screen itself um is a text and i think that leads us right to masculinity and i think it, it'd kind of be interesting to talk about tom cruise and masculinity because he is really someone who you could trace for 40 45 years who has kind of basically maintained the exact same approach to masculinity. He's always doing things alone. He's always taking charge. Um, he's all, you know, the famous Tom Cruise run. He's always running into, into danger and those things. And, and this is really, I think, the movie that crystallizes that form of masculinity. But what's interesting is that this becomes a very, like, straight, guy thing at the moment when it's you know the dialectic of of the obvious gay subtext not even subtext like you said text of the movie is always operating at the same time and i think that 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 basically embodies tom cruise's um appeal he he's probably is the last real sex symbol or besides brad pitt but brad pitt it was always too much of an actor. Tom Cruise is, you know, I can never imagine referring to a Tom Cruise character. I mean, I guess we have been calling him Maverick, but it's like really Tom Cruise. What's the difference between Ethan Hunt and Maverick and all of these other people? So what do you guys, what do you think about that whole masculinity question and the eighties and how that's changed over time? I don't know. I mean, I guess like, like, like the eighties as is now, it's like quite often like, uh, the, the, the straightest guys like act the gayest, you know, like, and then, you know, uh, evidence of that in the uh, playing with the boys volleyball scene. I mean, this is all very tongue in cheek, but, and then Tom Cruise himself being an avatar of like alpha masculinity is also funny because given, you know, 
uh, just for, I don't know uh, intimations about his own sexuality, or just like. But if you think uh, about like, or today, just how like, we, or just how weird he seems, like with women in movies, <laughs> like he would yeah. never but, like, be a chat, like, right? like, like the a love scene, is not Tom Cruise. No, a yeah, that's, is like yeah. Striper or whatever. Yeah, slider, slider, <laughs> yeah. slider, striper. Sorry, <laughs> striper. Like that. Like I said, like just how weird the romance between him and Kelly McGillis plays in this movie. That is just like either, either it's intentional and it's genius, or it's just like unintentional but says so much about the the real meaning of the movie. It's like the love scene with them to take my breath away is so funny because it's just like them in silhouetted profile staring at each other. <laughs> And then Tom Cruise just starts like, and then they're facing each other like in, you know, classic Mish position. And it's just like, Tom Cruise is just like looking intensely at her and then starts like, you know, flicking his tongue in and out of her mouth like a lizard. It's just, it's very, it's, it's so. such a good scene. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny. It's so, and like when I first saw it as a kid, like I was laughing at this scene. Like I, I, I don't know, like I already knew that this movie was like, this is why this movie was good. Is because unlike any other action movie, like where it's just like a corny love scene just plays at that level. Like, I don't know, in Top Gun, there's just, there's so much more going on. Like it's just it's it's such a rich text. Well, I think this is also kind of a trope in a lot of those mid '80s movies. They are self-aware. Predators self-aware. Later Rambo's are self-aware. The ones that aren't serious. But Top Gun, I think one of the reasons that someone like Tarantino would focus on it is it's such a self-aware text. It really presages the '90s in a lot of ways. With it, it's playing with tropes so consciously. It, it's basically putting the subtext on 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 screen directly and and it's taking from different eras of american history i mean the famous great balls of fire scene it really prefigures uh, the postmodern cine- uh, cinema of of the 90s i think uh, well i thought i mean in it you know talking about disjointed i think not just the the like scenes that are supposed to hype this romance that really has no reason for being <laughs> they have no chemistry with one another um but there there seems to be like a lot of things that go on in this movie that like it, it feels like they wanted to do a, a, a more with it and then they like veered off like i mean even the top gun competition itself like this whole thing is hyped for like two-thirds of the movie is like, you know, who's going to win? And is it going to be Iceman? Is it going to be Maverick? And it just like flames out. And then it's like, okay, everybody to the aircraft carrier, we have to go bomb North Korea slash China slash Russia. Uh, And it's just this weird, like, you know, okay, we don't care about that anymore. Like we're moving on to the next thing. And it felt, uh, I remember when I watched it as a kid being like, man, you know, there's like, it's weird, like just a weird pacing to it. But uh, and even you know, watching it again, like you know, for this, uh, I was like, the, you know, there's, there just seems to be directions that they thought about going in, and then said, "Now nah, let's you know go go somewhere else." This movie, like it, it, same era, but it reminds me a lot of like the same treatment of connecting the technology of like military death and destruction to the male sex drive that is really hammered the fuck home in the first like 30, 40 minutes of Full Metal Jacket. It's like, you know, this is my rifle, this is my gun, yeah. one's for fighting, the other's for fun. And like, those are like fucking jarhead. Those are like fucking Marine recruits. The fucking Top Gun pilots, like these guys are like the, the, of a different class character entirely than like Marine fucking, uh, you know, basic training. These guys, you have to be smart. You're literally the best of the best. Like these guys are not just anybody. They're like the ultimate jocks of the military and the planes themselves. Like there's so many scenes where I think like it's slider or someone like says of like, uh, like air, aerial combat. He's like, this gets my dick hard, you know, like there. And then, like, and then like, you know, like the whole, uh, the inverted dive. When you yeah. first meet him, actually, yeah. I believe yeah. that is his first line in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, like yeah, in the movie, like, you know, like it, in, in, in in obvious and then like you know uh, more subtle ways is like constantly constantly um uh pinning you know like the the male physical form uh the male sex drive to yeah like firing missiles at other planes firing missiles in aerial combat and it's very interesting because when you compare it with the history of war movies it's just so different from the types of war movies you got from the 40s and the 60s which are all about collective action which are all about yeah. you know coming together different parts of America right. and the melting pot in the World War II squadron right which would return with Saving Private Ryan 12 <laughs> years later but as an exercise in nostalgia you're right like the and- Top Gun competition 
is like 12 of all the exact yourself. same guy all yeah. fucking uh, clawing against each other <laughs> yeah. to be number one, Literally. to be top boy. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That, that, and it's very, it's almost British in a sense, you know, yeah. which I, I guess makes sense because the dog fighting tradition is much more like dueling, which is wasn't really an American thing like it was in Europe. Uh, and in fact, dog fighting, Derek, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, but dog fighting was never really an important part of American war, right? It was um, almost always bombing and that was yeah, pretty much it. that I was mean, the point know, of the air force because i don't know enough right right no because but that, basically right. the, was, the mission of the air force which is why this is in the navy the mission of the air force is to have an independent strategic mission which is bombing the idea is that you don't right. have to fight wars you just bomb their electrical plants and communication networks but in the, in the, in the navy but like that's, they have but that's not cool that's not cool no, to no, think about in fact cool it's kind of depressing it's depressing, the wars, depressing <laughs> yeah, 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 we yeah. have to blow yeah. up the town's water supply now <laughs> yeah yeah we have to we have to man yeah, that oh, like damn. that uh, like that allows the reality of what war actually is to intercede into this fantasy where like wars between two fucking superpowers can just be fought by like the two guys with the biggest dicks and like the, the tightest nerves in the in the, the, the those two countries can just get in these beautiful machines and just fuck each other in the air beautifully. I'm like that <laughs> that's how we solve conflict. That's the that's the fantasy of war and the military industrial complex. So the, yeah, this this um blessed and like sexy individual achievement like that's the that's the fantasy that this movie is so so beautifully and brilliantly selling and it's also interesting that you use the word uh progressive because i'm doing some research into the early history of the air force right now and the air force and and it's not even the air force because this is a navy movie of course but flying um was really associated with progress. It, it, it's a high technology. It's advanced technology. You're able to have radar. You're able to basically control war. Like where it, it, the the dream of it is that it lifts the fog of war because you fly over it. Um, so it's interesting because there was always a progressive element to that, and in some sense, the the, the gay subtexts are directly connected to that because there it's it's it was. I think it's been wrongly portrayed as a conservative movie, but it's in, in some sense the ultimate liberal movie. It's about individualism. It's about high technology. It's about taming the untamable and bringing civilization. So I think that's, that's to me, what's the most compelling thing about Top Gun as, you know, like a quote-unquote text is that it's been misread so much and it's a liberal apotheosis, even if it's very much um, reflective of Reagan, because in some sense, Reagan is a stream of liberalism becoming conscience, sentient. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the movie is obviously like, you know, jingoistic and, you know, juiced uh, the Navy recruitment numbers for a decade or something like that. But, um, but yeah, like if it had been like, um, an outwardly reactionary or like, uh, like not a pure piece of like cocaine Hollywood mania, it wouldn't have been effective at all in the Reagan era at being like a, that, that much of a boon to recruitment. Like, I mean, like, if it was that, like, you know, it's funny, like, of a, like, kind of li more liberal New Deal era, like, the, as you were saying, Danny, the war movies are actually more conservative, and, and then it wasn't about, you know, individualism and, you know, and being sexy and cool. It was about community. You know, it was about getting together. Community. Well, it, it was both. It was about community, but also, like, going across boundaries and fighting in the name of the state. This is just, like you said, pure cocaine. There's no logic to Top Gun. You know, there, there's no logic to literally the movie. There's no logic to what are they doing? What are they doing in the Indian Ocean? Why are the Soviets, why would the Soviets cool. attack them? Cool it's so <laughs> fucking insane. Why would they risk that? Um, it's just a movie, it's a movie that exists in a, in a dreamscape almost. Yeah. And I think that's also very attractive about it and very, the embodiment of the 1980s and why it's lasted more so than I probably every other movie and why this new one's going to be fucking gigantic. It already I is. I think it's like yeah. already, yeah. They're going to start greenlighting more like quote unquote original, I guess, uh, original <laughs> IP from 30 years ago. Was this based on a book? I don't think so. No, no. So this I don't is think the so. original. No, no it wasn't. Yeah. I, I have a question about uh, the, uh, for you guys about a movie that was based on a book from roughly the same era, which is one of my favorite movies, actually, The Hunt for Red October. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, how would hell you yeah. position Top Gun? Uh, against a movie like Hunt for Red October, which is also, I mean, there are some similarities. It's also sort of, or sort of reveres technology over people. Uh, it's also about, you know, two giant dicks, basically penis fencing in the ocean, <laughs> firing smaller penises at one another. 
Uh, there there uh, is an isolation to being on a submarine. Yeah, I mean, it's not just like you and your, you know, backseat guy and your wingman. Uh, there's more people, but you're 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 also cut off in a way that's even more, you know, from from like society and civilization in a way that's even uh, more profound. I think. So I'm I'm curious how you guys would would juxtapose these films. That's a really good. That's a really great comparison, and they make for a really good juxtaposition because they both are. You know, like like uh, hyper jingoistic products of like the like second Cold War, and by that I mean the one Reagan started, like in, in his first term. You know, like to 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 get over the Vietnam syndrome by essentially restarting the Cold War with the Soviet Union and and, and playing up the like eighties era Soviet Union, like they were about to fucking take over the world. Um. The difference between the two, and I love both movies. In fact, I think I made like Hunter Red October a little bit more than Top Gun. But the difference in the two movies is the sensibility of Tom Clancy, who is enamored with military technology because he's a fucking dork and likes all of the fucking like stats and specifics. <laughs> and Tony like, like, Scott, who is yeah, not. And Tony Scott, Don <laughs> yeah, Simpson, like, and Jerry Bruckheimer, who are just, just one fucking one into- en- endless rail of just like, of just pure <laughs> dream reality. Like, like, of just, of cool, like, of cool, because, like, the thing is, like, they, the, the once again, like, in Hanford October, like, the fate of the entire Cold War does come down to two guys, Sean Connery and Alec Baldwin, you know, the, the Jack Ryan character, but, like, it comes down, it, like, Jack Ryan becomes a hero of that movie, because he starts out as an academic, like, he's a consultant for the CIA, right. and he becomes a hero right. just because he studied, like, this one fucking Lithuanian submarine fucking captain, and, like, the history of naval warfare more than anyone, and he's like, ah, ha, I have, I have the facts needed to, you know, solve this problem and i'm like i'm not even supposed to be here but yeah like uh Red october is about the people the people who are glorified are people like tom clancy like military history dorks and top gun like has i think a, a way larger purchase in the cultural imagination because it's about made by and for cool guys doing cool shit and they don't they don't <laughs> they don't care about uh history and they like the thing is like an f-14 is cool because it goes 700 miles an hour and flying fucking launches itself off a of fucking aircraft carrier not because you know all the specifics about how the engine works or like the airfoils are designed it's the ego versus the id it's like the democratic party versus the republican <laughs> party and in the end the id is always going to win you know it, it's not even a question so one thing that i found interesting that uh when i was doing research for this episode is, is the the term wingman right because i think a wing, wingman becomes part of the culture uh but it it surprisingly turns out that there's obviously an uptick in 1986 because of uh, basically the mid 1980s because of Top Gun. But then Wingman reaches its peak in in like 2013, which is actually pretty interesting as a percentage of appearances in books because that suggests I was I'm, it'd be interesting to see how Tom Gun was actually perceived in the 90s and 2000s, and I wonder if it got a rejuvenation during the War on Terror. Um, one, because I think a lot of the, the types of movies that it represented didn't exist any longer, you know, these sorts of budgeted action movies. Uh, and then also, obviously, there's this war of terror, uh, war on terror. And there's a reason that George W. Bush had that famous picture and, and with him dressed as a, he was dressed as a pilot. I don't know if it was a fighter pilot or a bomber. So what's your, your, your feel on how the, the reception of Top Gun has or hasn't changed over the course of our own lifetimes? I mean, like, I would imagine, like, you know, like, Wing, Wingman became such a big fixture in, you know, sort of like, uh, the pop culture lexicon. I would say, I would assume largely because of, like, you know, uh, like, the movie Swingers and kind of, like, pickup artists, like, young male dating culture. And, you know, it's funny because, like, even though the movie does, you know, uh, uh, valorize like in individual coolness rather than a kind of a collective American identity, the lesson that Maverick does have to learn in the movie is that you never leave your wingman. Like, you know, like if you're, if you're covering someone's back, you can't just, you know, like, uh, break off to, uh, go for the end zone yourself. You have to cover them first. So there is a little bit of self-sacrifice that's, uh, he has to learn a little bit of humility and self-sacrifice for the greater good by the end. Uh, you know, as, as you would in dating culture, you know, someone, someone has to distract the ugly friends so that, you know, uh, so that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is so funny that it became such like a part of pickup. Pick up yeah. artistry, right? That, oh, that yeah. is basically where it, once again, there. once again, it's like the language of uh, military conquest and violence applied to you know uh, <laughs> male heterosexuality. Yeah, by it's like peanut butter and chocolate, two, two things that are great by themselves, <laughs> but are even better together. <laughs> I, I mean, I think this leads into um, kind of or it, it lends itself to a discussion of why it took so long to get a sequel 
made to this film. And, and the fact that my understanding is there there was a sequel already in development when like the tailhook scandal broke in the early 90s. Oh, really? And the Navy wow. was like, you know, sh- kind of shattered, you know, the, the, these uh, sexual misconduct scandal just kind of shook the Navy up and they were like, we don't want to do another, like we don't want to do a movie that glorifies the Navy right now it would be, uh, you know, could be bad for us publicity wise. Um, and then that caused it to be delayed. And then I think, you know, you go through the 1990s and like, what are you going to do with this movie about? Like, what is the plot of the sequel to Top Gun going to be about in the era of like, we're, you know, bombing Serbia? Like, <laughs> I mean, what, what's the story? Like, what's we, the we discovered that Tom Cruise was in Bosnia in the second movie, right? He's deployed yes, to Bosnia. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was in Bosnia. He was, he in was Iraq, everywhere. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, both times. They said like, <laughs> yeah. Iraq both times. Yeah. But, um, we'll talk but, about I mean, so. No. And then, you know, and then you get into the, the 2000s and that's when I think, you know, as you said, Danny, the war on terror, uh, I think that's when, um, they started to like revive interest in doing a sequel. But then, of course, t- Tony Scott, um, you know, committed suicide and that, that delayed things further. So I, I, um, I do think there's a revival of in, in like the war on terror era where, where it's like, cool to root for the military again after uh, yeah, after 911. Yeah, but I don't I don't think that the the sequel like would have come around or really would have worked during the height of the war on terror because everyone was so fucking like self-serious and sanctimonious and then just like and then it curdled in about two years and then no one wanted to talk or think about it ever again and it was mostly all the war on terror movies are just you know like the 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 shoot and cry about how hard it is for american soldiers to have to like come home and go to fucking (laughs) yeah yeah, like oh it's like the guy (laughs) oh it's it's so bad he has to go home and like shop at price chopper because it's so boring he's like it's not as exciting as diffusing bombs but like okay like why Top Gun was so so brilliant and why it worked so well for recruitment in the eighties, like I think like you said, is this like later Reagan era like like fantasy land and like this this need for like American action movies in the eighties to like counter this this Vietnam syndrome to symbolically refight and win Vietnam and prove to ourselves that we're not gun shy about using our military or like you know uh, experiencing casualties and like well now like we've gone through decades of like well we have been using our American military we've been killing shit, millions of people uh, you know a few thousand Americans have died in the process whatever no one really wants to talk or think about it but I think like the sequel it works so well now like you said it's it's weird because it's the same moment of yeah like imperial decline or fantasy where like there is no really like one defined i guess russia now has come back as the the one defined kind of, enemy yeah. so like that that China, works beautifully kind of, yeah that yeah. works beautifully with the you know this kind of late cold war era sort of oh, template they, that they're using yeah but it's not china because of the chinese market you know that's who it would be <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah 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 sell the movie yeah, and, i mean Top Gun with it, I mean, which is like, you know, the enemy at the end is like, you know, they could be China, they could be the Soviets, they could be, you know, anybody who's flying a MiG, basically. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't even get away with that kind of ambiguity. I think now China's such a big movie. No, market. absolutely. That's why the middle, uh, the Middle East have to make it clear. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know how people always talk. They had that conversation in pop culture. I don't know. This is probably on Twitter before I heard of it about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Is Top Gun <laughs> a California movie? Because I think it is because yeah. I can't actually think of any other explicitly war movies that actually take place in California. Now, of course, it's a training thing. Uh, it takes place around, I imagine, Coronado Island, like Fighter Town is Miramar. For, I forget the exact name of it. But it really, I think it's so crucial to the setting that it takes place in California. You could have sexy war with well, a surfer playing volleyball, all that stuff. Will. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like um, it, I think it's definitely a California movie. Like I said, that that sun-kissed like tony scott glow that uh is suffused throughout the home of throughout the, you know the whole movie like only the be- only the first and last scene takes place like out of outside of california but yeah like it's perfect because like the, what what is this movie it's like the perfect merger of the entertainment industry and the defense industry and where are both of those fucking major sectors of the american economy located southern california like that's the heart of both of them and so like of course like that's the way it has to be a california movie 
it really is. That's such a great point because it really is that it transcends the dialectic. The two industries that made Southern California was uh, what it was are united in this movie, and 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 they're also the two industries that are basically about the fantasy of American empire. Yeah, Both, absolutely. You know, uh, the the fantasy obviously of Hollywood that's obvious and portraying the American image, but also the fantasy of of the defense industry, and in particular, it was airframe manufacturers like Douglas Aircraft that really made the California defense industry what it was, and that's a fantasy of clean war. Yeah. So it totally makes sense that when you combine these two things and have like this magnetic guy at the center of it, uh, that it's going to be an explosive hit because it's a, it, it hits the exact American fantasy scape, the exact American pleasure center of defense in Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, like, that's what I mean about like, you know, like Tony Scott, like, like he makes dreams. He makes dreams. Like this is not... This is not pure reality. This is hyper reality. And like, like, that's what I mean. Like, that's what it helped create, like, the, the, the true blockbuster, like, genre. It, like, it, it has to have an element to that, of that, that, that kind of hyper reality that Tony Scott gets so well. And like, and like, and like, yeah, all the meta layers to this movie, whether it's about, uh, sexuality, performance, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like, and then, uh, the defense industry, propaganda, and the relationship between propaganda and Hollywood from the fucking very beginning of Hollywood. So that I think leads us to what will probably be our last topic because this will also lead into the second Top Gun episode and that's Goose because so much of the second movie is organized around Goose and Maverick's relationship to Goose. So Goose to me is one of the strangest characters in cinema history. He's literally just a walking plot device. So I yeah. was wondering if you guys had any <laughs> thoughts about well, he is there to die. Uh, yes. Goose is obviously and, and we could also compare who 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 dies in this one compared to the fact that no one dies in the second one. That's a very big <laughs> shift in American movie making. Um, but yeah, what do you, what's your guys take on goose and Meg well, Ryan? Who he's, you know, for, for, <laughs> for a generation of American men, you're right. Goose was just the character that was synonymous with like the sidekick who, you know, is going to die from the first they second. They make fun he's of on, Hot Shots. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 Hot yeah. Shots. Oh, by the way, Hot Shots also one of my favorite comedies. So, hot Shots on Hot Shots, 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 shots Part Deux are so fucking funny. I, yeah. lo I love those movies. But like, yeah, uh, like the death of Goose is a, is a primal moment in primal. American masculinity. It's, it's a primal Millennial scene. Millennial men. It's, it's a primal scene, as Freud would say. It's like a, <laughs> the, the death of Goose, to me, represents the plot device he has to fulfill. is like, you know, uh, the obviously third act conflict. You know, the hero has to doubt himself for some reason. But really, right. I think what's truly going on here is that Goose is the odd man out in the Top Gun school in that he is actually heterosexual. And he actually right. like loves his wife and family. You see his wife. Like Meg, that's a, Meg Ryan is on screen to just be like, oh, he has a family. Like <laughs> he's not just playing volleyball. He is there. He man. has no. a family. She yeah, is yeah. <laughs> So like I, th I think I think Goose has to die to like sever uh, Pete Maverick Mitchell's last remaining threads to being wedded to the concept of <laughs> heterosexuality or right. or not or not inverted. I remember his, his inverted four G drop. And they keep talking about him being inverted in the uh the sense of you know violating nature but no uh, a goose is there too yes i think um uh like he's the last remaining thread uh that, that represents the opportunity to have a normal not inverted heterosexual life and family and that like yes they overcome that conflict by like that like, that's how he gets over his uh his self-doubt is to just fully right. commit to just you know being ice's wingman <laughs> i mean i think that's interesting because you could make the argument i mean you guys know the the fridging trope, right? Where the female lead gets killed to like further the male yeah, lead yeah. story. Yeah, of course. I think, I mean, you could make an argument that Goose basically gets fridged in this movie. He's I mean, his he's work wife. Killed. Uh, he's, he, yeah, he's Tom Cruise's work wife and he gets killed to, uh, you know, set up the, as you say, the third act conflict where, uh, Maverick doubts himself and he's got to be, you know, he's got to have a talking to from, uh, the father figure, Tom Skerritt, and then, you know, go yeah. out and, uh, you know, win glory for himself and so like this is true of all action movies like uh, but like most of them are not as self-aware as top gun because like uh women are, are essentially completely pointless and like their, their inclusion in any action movie is like ancillary at best or just a plot device to like kickstart the revenge or like oh like now our hero is real now shit just got real as they said in bad boys part two yeah i like but, how john wick she's just dead get that out of the way don't need, don't need to worry about yeah, <laughs> but yeah like uh but but truly top gun like all action movies are truly about like what they're their romance movies about the love between two men 
and you know you you can snicker and read into the i mean like in this movie <laughs> siren alarmingly obvious uh, gay context of it or you can just take it at face value that like action movies are the like one of the only uh, genres or except uh, action movies in sports are like the only two arenas of American life in which uh, men can express love for one another in, in like an open now. emotional way. Yeah, and like that, that is the culmination of Top Gun is like two men finally. Uh, you know, it's like the classic the classic Hollywood romance. You know, first they hate each other, then they you know sort of compete with each other, and then they love each other, and that's Ice and Maverick at the end Lifelong of Top partners. Gun. I will Text say buddies. though, uh, I just watched the original Top Gun again. And the scene where uh, Tom Skerritt's Viper, like the daddy figure, gives him the pep talk about, like, you know, if you fly long enough, like, you're going to see people die. You know, he's like, I lost half my squadron in Vietnam. And, like, you know, like, either you learn from this and you go on to still be a better pilot or, like, you'll let it destroy you. Like, you'll quit. I mean, no disgrace. But, like, you know, unless you get over the death of Goose, like, you know, either you're going to do that and move on or you're never going to get over it. And the end of the movie, like after the dog fight, after they emerge victorious, uh, Tom Cruise takes uh, Goose's dog tags and just like in this big, huge, cathartic moment, just like right, reels back him, and just yeah. chucks them into the Indian Ocean. And it's like this moment of like, oh, he finally got over the death of his best friend and, and, and number two. And then it's just like, well, then, then we'll get into Top Gun Maverick tomorrow. It's like, oh, no, actually, he never got over it. And it's defined, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's defined his entire life. <laughs> just yeah, rewind question. that. Play that <laughs> Did he also throw his dad's dog tags as well? Because there were Ooh, two. Were, that, were those just... Well, no, every I dog tag no, has two. You, yeah, every dog tag has two. Okay, okay. Two every dog tag is double. So, yeah, yeah. It was, it was good. So it wasn't his dad's. Okay. Uh, can I ask one uh, totally random question? Uh, I'm just curious if uh, either of you are familiar with the far inferior Air Force version of this movie, Iron Eagle. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I kept. I was thinking about that a lot as we were like doing, as I watched the like Maverick and then I watched Top Gun again. I was thinking about the Iron Eagle movies and like how how bad. Luke, Luke Gossett like, Jr. They, Luke Gossett Jr. Yeah, Luke Gossett Jr. was like the saving grace of those things. Dude, and like, they what's never, the first I don't Iron think Eagle any of was like ever made money, but they kept getting made. They made like four of them, which I think is obvious. Like there's some deep state money going into the, those movies. I mean, okay, like Derek, as I'm going. sure you know, like the Air Force's fucking inferiority complex of the Navy. Like, why do we even have a fucking Air Force? <laughs> it's just be like the Navy is our planes too. And like their inferiority well, I mean, complex. The, the, it was the Army Air Force. Like, yeah. That, that was its origins, was as a branch of the Army, not as its own thing. Yeah. And then, like, the know. fact that the Navy gets to have planes, too, but the Navy is just so much more storied than, you know. But, yeah, Iron Eagle, a movie literally about, like, a teenager who is allowed to fly fighter planes because <laughs> his dad died. <laughs> and, like, it's Lou Gossett Jr. trains a teenager to be a fighter pilot to, like, avenge his father. I mean, I, God, I haven't seen them in forever. But, yeah, I watched all of the Iron Eagle movies. Oh man, that's uh, I know that's that's a deep cut, but but uh, yeah, I've they made four Iron Eagle movies, four of four them. of them. The <laughs> last one I think was uh, directed video. After the third one, <laughs> made like two million dollars on a fifteen million dollar budget or something like that. But yeah, the, there were a classic, uh, a classic kind of eighties nineties uh, B flicks, B war nonsense flicks. Yeah, you take my nerves and you rattle my brain. <laughs> So the Great Balls of Fire scene to me is the weirdest in the movie because it actually connects to absolutely nothing, but it it in fact becomes the central pivot the central feature of the second of the movie. second movie. <laughs> yes. so, yes. Explain that to me. It has it is it, <laughs> so weird. Uh, like so, just for so people who haven't seen it, Goose is playing Great Balls of Fire. And Tom Cruise goes over and sings with him. That's right. the entire so, scene. My theory is, and I mean, we can talk more about this when we talk about the sequel, but my theory is that's the scene where Tom Cruise interacts the most with the it's little Kelly, boy who's yeah. going to grow up to be Rooster. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And so they they want to establish that, like, you know, Maverick and and the kid had a relationship with one another that got, you know, broken apart by... Goose's death, and then the you know everything else that happens uh, apparently happened in the backstory. Uh, but I think that's why they they play that scene because it establishes the link between him and the you know rooster as a child. Uh, like and again, like I, they, I mean, like 
they wouldn't have been aware of that when they made the original Top Gun because they probably, I mean, I don't know if they were aware of like how they're planning a sequel already about, you know, yeah, fucking well, I mean, they certainly wouldn't have thought like the that, movie sequel. That's why it becomes a, later, very important right? to the second movie. But like, I, Danny, I just, I come back to like something you said earlier about like the, the Jerry Lee Lewis song there, like Great Balls of Fire. It's just this like, again, odd disjointed like feels like it's from a different movie like this so weird. The, yes. the the sort of like the the cleaving to the pop culture of like a like a, a an entirely different generation it's this like golden oldie <laughs> but then like what what is the song i don't know like to me it comes back to once again this kind of like this explosion of like mid-century american like energy and like sexual potency that like is so tw- is so uh, so, so, so pinned to the, like, yeah, like the idea of air travel and air combat and like the plane itself, you know, like, uh, of possibility, power, speed, things like that. And then great balls of fire. Like when it, the, 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 the death, the death, the death drive pinned to yeah. our sexuality as well. It's just like, there's nothing better than just like, you know, the climax of, uh, exploding at 600 miles an hour in the middle of the fucking sky. <laughs> Yeah, this movie has a weird relationship to public singing. We'd even think uh, talk about the you lost that loving feeling, which became so famous. That was like such a trope in the 1990s when I was a kid. There were nobody so would many know that song that if it wasn't that. for Top Gun. Nobody yeah, today nobody. would have any idea what that song was. Oh, was if we're, we're not for Top Gun. And, and and maybe just to close, and we could talk about this or just end. But it really is incredible how many famous scenes this movie has. It, it's a four or five of the most famous scenes of all time. And just seeing it again for the first time in a while, it, it just, it bangs. Tony Scott is a king and RIP to a real one. Yeah. Better than Ridley. And if, you're, and if you're in Los Angeles, uh, check out the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. You can see Tony's uh, gravestone, which is this a uh, very impressive slab of marble that has a sculpture of a man like climbing like one like the sides of the marble are like on the on the sides are like completely like um smooth and on it he has his he has his filmography etched into his like his IMDb director credits list is etched into his tombstone <laughs> but the yeah. front face of it That's is like cool. is jagged and there's the sculpture of a man sort of climbing a cliff face it's a very striking and and unique uh, uh tombstone so uh, if you'd like to pay your respects to the god tony scott and are in los angeles i highly recommend a day trip to the hollywood forever cemetery Actually, that uh, that makes me think of something. That sort of climbing of the mountain was a really important trope in early nineteenth-century German romanticism, and sort of that vitality is what you get with Tony Scott. And yeah. I think there's a real vitalist element to his work, so that's a perfect uh, thing to put on his grave. You know, conquering individual men, conquering mountains is is what Tony Scott is about. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Will Menneker, you all know he's uh, the host of Chapo Trap House. Uh, please check that out, as I'm sure you already do. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Will. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye.